Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Connect on blogtalkradio.com. Catch us on the web at umconnect.info. Welcome to this new episode of Connect. I'm Michael Rich, the Web and Communications Manager for the Western North Carolina Conference. Our guest this morning is Brian Combs. He's the pastor of Haywood Street Congregation in Asheville. And because Wednesday morning is a big day at Haywood Street, we're pre-recording this show. So today we're going to find out more about Brian Combs and his unique ministry in downtown Asheville. So welcome to the show, Brian. Glad to be here, Michael. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you here. And uh, let's just go back to the beginning. We'll do some uh, going back where you started from. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What was your early church life like? I'm from Charlotte, grew up at the intersection of uh, South Boulevard and Tavola. That's where I call home and was there from birth until 18. Middle class family, two hardworking parents. I was baptized at Myers Park, and then my folks switched over to Sharon United Methodist, and that was really the formative experience for me growing up. Mm-hmm. Youth group, Sunday school in the mornings, and then every summer was at Camp Tacoa. All right. And I think John Boggs was your pastor at John one time. John was a formative uh, pastor in my life, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, timing-wise, uh, what year did you finish uh, high school down there? Finished in 1995. Okay. And then you went where to college? Went to NC State for oh. undergrad and majored in industrial design and worked in that field a number of years before feeling certain that it was time to, to give my life to ordained ministry. Okay. So tell us about your call story. And I know uh, it can get more involved, but the first one that led you to, to CanLearn at Atlanta. The first one really began in the kitchen of Camp Tacoa in remarkable ways. Tacoa was a place that really introduced me to quiet discipleship. And mm. so my role in the kitchen was to butter the biscuits and mop the floors and take out the trash. And my dad had seen this formative experience for me, and he connected me with Brother Lawrence's work and mm. this whole notion of prayer is an act of ordinary life, mm-hmm. and, and that was profound for me, and so that's really where the initial nudge came. And through a series of uh, careers and jobs here and there and hiking the Appalachian Trail, found my way to Emory, and at Candler, the specificity of my call really began to clarify, and regardless of whether I was taking homiletics or pastoral care or Old Testament, this this priority of the poor really became apparent to me. And so that's that's really where everything I'm doing now began to take form and shape. Okay. I'm going to go back to the Appalachian Trail. Have you done the whole thing? Through hiked in 2001. Okay. And so uh, uh, I, I'd heard this story, and it's a pretty amazing thing. I, I wanted to do that, too, back in the 80s. And... Uh, I haven't done it, uh, but I'm getting up to over half of it. Section hiking. Section hiking. Great. So, Good for you. Um, but it's interesting. Um, you also told the story about uh, being called um, to this specific ministry you're doing here um, while you were doing uh, an internship there at uh, uh, Candler. Tell, tell me that story. Sure. After, again reading Howard Thurman, immersing myself in the Gospels, and then being steeped in Methodist history, and all those points connecting back to this priority of the poor. I asked my professors how I can live that out, how can I incarnate this truth that seems so obvious to me now after three years of education. And they recommended clinical pastoral education 
on the streets of downtown Atlanta. And so I was at a place called uh, St. Luke's Episcopal, and they had a crossroads social service agency ministry there. And my job initially was to sit behind a desk to hand out MARTA tokens, get people into detox and mm-hmm. rehab. And while that was very important work, what I noticed was the real heart of the place was happening across the street in this little park. Mm-hmm. And that's where folks would go after they'd come to crossroads. And I felt very much called to that place and asked my supervisor, can I can I just spend my days there? And thankfully he said, that's where you're called and so be it. And so the rest of the summer became this practice of intentional presence, of a ministry of helplessness in a lot of ways, of simply showing up and listening and watching for a very, very different Jesus than I'd ever experienced at Sharon United Methodist or, or mm-hmm. Myers Park before that. And what I found was that in the encounter with the transvestite prostitute or uh, the aged-out pimp or the crack addict or the fellow struggling with his HIV and AIDS, that God was manifesting in a way that I had never experienced before. Hmm. And so I I really met a new Jesus there on the streets of Atlanta. Hmm. Very interesting. So you finish up at Candler. What year was that? Finished in 06. Okay, and that was the year I moved back to Haywood County, and I believe you moved to Haywood County I in did. 2006. I did. So tell us about that uh, first ministry out of uh, out of seminary. So finished up at Crossroads, that CPE experience, and then I did a year at Grady Hospital, which is the big indigent hospital in Atlanta, and love that. was the chaplain on the psychiatric ward and the chaplain Friday nights in the ER and had the NICU with the two-pound preemies that mm-hmm. uh, were struggling with the addiction that their mothers had. And then it was appointment time, and so like many young ministers, I was appointed to Waynesville as a two-point charge, uh, two small rural churches, and um, I think of that in many ways as a, as a second master's degree. Mm. Um, it was so profoundly different from everything I'd experienced at Candler and then that formative year on the streets. And so um, I learned an awful lot about administration and preaching and taking the trash out and printing the bulletins and everything in between. And I would say it was a wonderful education in being a generalist because as a solo pastor, you literally get to do everything. You get to do it all. That's right. So, Okay. And then uh, it was during that time uh, that Haywood Street Congregation began to take root. So let, before we go into all the specifics about Haywood Street, I just want you to take a little time and talk about the beginnings. How did that all come about? The beginning really was a place of restlessness. And what became very, very clear to me is many of my colleagues in ministry had said, typically the way things work in most conferences is if you do a good job, if you grow your churches, if you keep your head down in 20 years, you'll get to serve where you feel most called. Hmm. And that was very sobering advice from a lot of folks who had been loyal and faithful servants to the denomination. And after a year in Waynesville, it was very clear to me that there was no way I could sustain another year of this, much less 20. And so I literally started calling DSs and bishops and anybody across the country in an urban setting that would pick up the phone, and I introduced myself, told them what I was called to. And some people hung up, some people continued the conversation, and there was a zealousness there to 
do ministry in the way in which I felt God was most calling me to or mm-hmm. go back to my career as a, as a designer in Raleigh. And so I, I was incredibly motivated, and I'm, I, I credit Waynesville for that. Uh, it was an experience of being so far out of context that I really was not going to take no for an answer anywhere else. And so that began the process of Haywood Street, and then and then John Boggs enters the picture again at that point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and he and I talked a little bit about it when I interviewed him back in, I think it was February. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that has been one of the more formative experiences in his career, uh, was pulling this all together. And that uh, what we know about Haywood Street is that, you know, you had a young pastor, uh, two DSs trying to find a place because we didn't want you to go uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. How can we find work for you right here doing exactly what you wanted to do? And uh, and John having this you know idea, and, and I don't know exactly how Haywood Street focused at that time, but I know that uh, Rob Blackburn was involved in, in all of this, and it just sort of happened. Uh, that, okay, we're going to do a homeless ministry, and here we've got a guy to do it, and we have no money, and we have no plan, and we're just going to do it. We're just going to do it. That's right. And, uh, yeah, it, it's amazing what has happened since then uh, because, you know, you can go there, and some days it doesn't feel like there's a plan. <laughs> Holy chaos is what we call it. That's right. But um, it is one of the most recognized ministries in the whole Asheville area, and it all came about because somebody was just persistent in trying to find their place in ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is a good word that you've given to restless folks out there and that um, you know putting your head down for 20 years to get to where you want to be is probably not the best way to do ministry. That was simply an untenable model for me. And as Haywood Street has grown more and more seminarians, we just uh, said goodbye to three who were with us this summer asking that question, how do I fit into a denomination that I feel such loyalty to that form me from baptism on and yet also be loyal to an even higher calling, and that's what God has put on my heart. And Mm -hmm. how do you navigate that? How do you speak up for yourself? How do you claim your authority? Those are all really important questions that, you know, I had to fumble through myself. And um, I'm thankful that the John Boggs and Rob Blackburns of the world believed in me and said yes to something. Uh, Perhaps it was an affirmation of their own restlessness as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing, and... uh, you know, anybody who knows me knows that I, I haven't done it the normal way either. I have always sort of bucked the trend and have found my place of ministry over and over again in different ways. You know, had to go clear across the world to Japan for, mm-hmm. you know, five years, but it was the best five years of my life. And um, but then you come back and um, you don't want to serve the normal way again. And so I did other things until. Uh, I ended up getting called back into congregational vitality and and working with Ken Carter and John, and and that's how I spent a lot more time at Haywood back then uh, than I get to now. But, you know, to know that that is how you do it, and I think that's the story for young clergy and anybody wrestling with that call to ministry is that uh, you, you just have to, you know, follow God's calling and somehow find a way to do it within the system and uh, sometimes, for me, it was outside of the system that I found my joy and pleasure. 
And you know, I'm now back in it and uh, finding some bit of joy because I said, well, you know, I want to do these things. And it wasn't normal communications. It was something out of line. Mm-hmm. But you get to do it. And, and you realize, oh, that was important. And you need to do these things. So I affirm you in that and affirm you in that continued calling that you receive. And so we're going to take a break right now, and then we're going to come back and talk more about the specifics of what goes on at Haywood Street, that holy chaos that you're about. So um, hear now from uh, Sally Queen, who's on our conference staff. My name is Sally Queen, and I'm the Associate Director of Ministerial Services. By virtue of our baptism, we are all called into ministry. This call is being faithfully lived out in the communities of Western North Carolina as people of all ages participate in building God's kingdom. Others are responding to God's call to license or ordain ministry by committing to faithfully lead our churches in vitality. All who are called are using their talents and gifts to follow Jesus, make disciples, and transform the world. The United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina is a ministry of the church for the church whose mission is to build the church for generations to come. We fulfill this vision by investing in people, as well as helping churches and related institutions invest the financial resources that God has given to them. My name is David Snipes, and we look forward to the day when you give your United Methodist Foundation a call. And you can find out more about the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina at our sponsor page on the show's website, which is umconnect.info. So we're back here with Brian Combs, and this is a pre-recorded show. And so we're going to get specific about Haywood Street. Tell, tell us, especially for those who've never experienced it, and in the conference, that would be a lot of people who've never experienced Haywood Street. What happens every week there? What what is that ministry that you are called to and, and is so unique? First thing I would say, Michael, is it's an incarnational ministry, and it it prioritizes relationship above all else, and the very simple premise that of all the ways God could be among us, God chose to be a homeless derelict who spent mm-hmm. his time with paupers and bleeding women and demoniacs. And so instead of thinking myself of myself as the pastor in charge, I think of myself more as the, the listener in charge. And my role is to go out into the community under the bridges and the soup kitchens and listen for the voice of God speaking back to me through the stories, through the biographies of those same very people that Jesus showed up with. And so that's where we begin ministry from the bottom up. And when we began six years ago, the broadest vision I could ever have had for Haywood Street would have been a dozen folks from the psych ward coming out of Um, the tent camps down by the river, and myself. And the holy surprise that has happened has been not only people in poverty who struggle with mental illness addiction finding a place of welcome and love, but that people of privilege feel like their salvation is bound up in this encounter too. Mm -hmm. And that has been the place of, of, of great change and transformation that I have noticed. And oftentimes I'm routinely asked, how many people got housing? How many people got sober? How many people got jobs because of Haywood Street? And that's a really important question for a social service agency, but it's a penultimate question for us. Mm-hmm. What I care more about is how did we practice family? What does communion look like together? And, and how does God call us to a, a blended type of kingdom that looks something like heaven here on earth? Hmm. 
So on the average week, and this is something that happens every Wednesday, um, people show up for a meal. Uh, there is opportunity for worship. There are other things that go on there. T- tell us about the specifics of a Wednesday. So we worship on Wednesdays, and I'm often asked the question, why Wednesdays? And the, the story goes, I was at Pritchard Park in Asheville, and a fellow said, middle of the day, middle of the week is when I struggle with my addiction the most, and I'd rather go to church than get high. Can you have an offering on Wednesday at lunchtime? And so that's where it began, very humbly, with a worship service. And it has grown since to include a clothing closet, haircuts, community acupuncture, dog food, a welcome table meal, medical respite, and a variety of other things. Uh, but again, what's most important to me about Haywood Street is that we're, we're leading from the voice of Jesus that's only heard on the streets. All right. Yeah, um, one of the things that I noticed, um, you know, the few times that I've been, uh, is it is a uh, hodgepodge of folks. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure when the meals started out, there weren't a few hundred, but I was there the last time, and there were about 350 people that were eating lunch. And it was off of Good China. And, you know, we sat around tables, and it was rich and poor and homeless and non-homeless. And uh, it was an amazing gathering of people talking with one another that you would never see at the average church uh, social uh, in the hallway. You know, we'd never use a Good China, heavens forbid. Um, and the meals were spectacular uh, every time I've been. Uh, you know, these are these are some of the best meals you're going to get in uh, town. So, tell tell me about what does food in that uh, welcome table meal uh, mean? Yeah, the theology of food is perhaps the most important language we speak in Christianity. It obviously um, ties back into communion and the Word made flesh over and over again. And my experience in poverty ministry is typically that well-meaning, well-intended churches say, well, really these are second class people and they only deserve second class things and so meals especially are leftovers, they're vending machine fare, the things that someone else threw out. And so from the very, very beginning, if food in fact communicates theology better than anything, then there's no scenario where you would go to the table of communion and someone would either say we're out of bread or here's stale bread or here's juice um, that's stale and so we should do the very opposite of that. And so when you come to Haywood Street, you will sit at a round table. That couldn't be more intentional. There'll be a tablecloth and a centerpiece and rolled up china. There'll be a wait staff. And then the food will either be provided by one of the local restaurants downtown, the exact same fare they're going to charge 20 and $30 a plate for, or we're going to cook it homemade ourselves. And for many folks, Michael, some days we have 600 people that show up now. Mm. They are never going to darken the door of our sanctuary. Right. And that's okay because we believe worship happens around that welcome table as well. And if that's the only message of Jesus they get, that God is abundant, that we are fed with a love and grace that tastes like nothing else, then then I'm satisfied with that. Mm. Yeah, but there is that offering every Sunday of worship. It's always there. Wednesday, excuse me. It feels like a big Sunday to me, but it is Wednesday. And there's always communion. Always. So you always follow a meal with communion. And it is quite an amazing thing. Uh, what I have witnessed there uh, on several occasions, and uh, I have this friend from uh, Waynesville. Uh, her husband's an Episcopal uh, deacon. And she's there 
nearly every Wednesday with you guys. And the first time she went to that church, she hated the Episcopal Church. Well, I won't say that, but it wasn't her favorite place Mm -hmm. to go. She won't miss worship on (laughs) Wednesday. Uh, And here her husband every Sunday is serving at the altar of the Episcopal Church in Canton. But uh, she's there because this for her is real worship. And, you know, she gets this great pleasure of telling stories and hearing stories. And so she's got the story circle uh, there. And it is an amazing thing to see people transform. Those Those that have no home, those whose homes are bigger than yours or mine. And they all find home in that worship. And, you know, it is a holy chaos moment. You you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you, you see the dogs come in and sit down. You see uh, homeless folks there with doctors and PhDs praying. Uh, your sermon is, and I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your sermon style, but your sermon is always a surprise. I'm sure it is to you because <laughs> you come in with a plan. I'm sure it gets changed drastically. So, so tell us about how you plan that worship experience to um, inculcate this chaos that is there. First thing is, and I heard Nadia Boltz Weber quote this, and it's been a helpful reminder for me that we, we prioritize participation over excellence. And so I, I could not agree more with that. That. Worship's at its very best when we all participate. Right. And typically that's sitting our hands and being quiet is how we've traditionally been taught. But at Haywood Street, we try to upend that in as many ways possible. And so if there's one voice that's primary among all, it's, again, those folks on the street. And so folks are going to serve communion. They're going to read the Scripture. They are going to participate in all kinds of ways that say, because of our baptism, we we literally believe that we're all ministers called to offer our gifts to the community. With the sermon in particular, I've heard many folks say the worship moment for them is a, is a participation. Right. And so my role is to introduce the text, have done my exegetical work, and then ask a question. And then we literally preach that question out in a variety of different ways. And then I'll close with a bookend of sorts. But what happens in that dialogue, and of course we're reminded that for centuries we believed that you should never read scripture alone, Mm. that the text and this thing called Christianity is too much to be encountered by ourselves, and so we need community. So why shouldn't we preach in community as well? Mm. And so it's a way to underscore those voices who are marginalized out in the world. And what I find over and over again is that to be in poverty most often requires the kind of relationship with God that I covet. Mm. There's an immediacy there. There's a rawness and there's a dependence on the holy that I simply am insulated from because of my privilege, my money, my access. And so oftentimes, even though I spend 15 or 20 hours a week getting ready for that sermon like every other preacher, uh, the most holy thing said, the proclamation comes from from someone who uh, crawled to church that day from their tent. Hmm. That's powerful. So what are the biggest challenges you face as the minister at Haywood Street? I would say a challenge from the very, very beginning has been this notion that is, I think, well-intended, but I would call it paternalistic missions. Hmm. And so what I mean by that is 
the, the suburban church who wants to come to Haywood Street to fix the poor people. Mm. And so we spend an awful lot of time trying to reorient people to that, that just because you have uh, white skin or just because you live uh, in a gated community or have a car or health insurance, that doesn't necessarily mean God has blessed you. And if you don't have any of those things, that certainly doesn't mean God has cursed you. Mm. And so this whole notion of who Jesus loves and who doesn't is something that we try to take on uh, from the very beginning. And so one of the ways we do that is we say to groups, we're glad you're here and you can't serve the first time you come. You can sit at the table, you can hold hands and worship, you can fellowship in any way you want, but you can't serve. There's no apron to put on, there's no spatula to pick up today. We're really glad you're here, but we would invite you to consider what your own spiritual poverty is today. Hmm. And so that's been an enormous challenge. That's very upsetting for lots of folks. It would have been upsetting for me too. Right. Um, and we'd like to think that's a that's a place where people are invited to grow in a way they probably wouldn't otherwise. Another challenge is we work so hard at empowering people on the street and saying, this is your church. And when folks are psychotic or having a bad trip, they come to Haywood Street as their place of sanctuary. Mm. Sometimes that's when all the doors have been shut. Sometimes that's... um, if they need to pick up something to go to the pawn shop, sometimes that's in some state of chaos. And so it's a constant balance of trying to figure out what does it mean to be radically welcoming mm. and to have some sense of preservation that we need the building, for example, to be here tomorrow instead right. of burn down. Uh, so th- those are routine challenges. Sure. So what do you see as a future? You've already been there six years. It's longer than a lot of us get to stay in a, yeah. uh, an appointment. Uh, I know that this is where you're called. You don't see any uh, further place to be. You want to be here 25 years from now. I can't imagine being anywhere else, Michael. This is my heart's desire in every way, and I would wish nothing less than every other clergy person to be able to say that for the entirety of their ministry. And so, yeah, this is where I think I I will be for, for some time. I see a second service coming up. We're going to be adding that in November, a Sunday night service. It's very difficult to find a a quality meal on the streets, and there have been so many youth groups and folks that have traveled to Haywood Street from outside of Asheville or even North Carolina who said we want to participate. So we want to do that, and there is a reverence for people in poverty to go to church on Sunday, Mm -hmm. and I really want to offer that to folks. So I see Haywood Street growing there. I'm very interested in social entrepreneurism and how do we create a a product that provides a living wage to folks who are unemployable because of their records and yet are good salt of the earth people that just need a chance. I'm curious about public housing at Haywood mm. Street. Um, that is a desperate need in Asheville, and we have a wonderful location downtown. So there are a variety of things I see as possibilities coming up. Well, and the one thing about it is you never run out of ministry to do there. You never do. That's right. And and that's the joy I find in my ministry is I can wake up tomorrow and know that there's always going to be something new, something to do. And uh, I, I'm not based on... I've got to pull this sermon together every Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I know that there are other things and other ways to be creative, and it's a guarantee at Haywood Street. So we're sort of toward the end of the show, and I would be amiss if I didn't give you an opportunity just just to preach what's on your heart. You've got a couple of minutes. What, what do you want people most to know about uh, ministry with the poor, ministry with those different than them? 
I would go back to what I said earlier. For those of us that have lived lives of such privilege, it's undeniable the gospel throughout the Bible is unquestionably pointing us always back towards the places of greatest suffering. And we inculcate ourselves with all of these scenarios and choices, these paraphernalias of privilege, and yet this is the story I hear most often from folks is I am at a desperate place in my journey of faith to encounter the living Christ. Where do I do that? And I always point them to the asphalt. Mm. That is where we all are called, in my opinion, and it is scary, it's terrifying, it's parabolic, it's all the good things that are promised in Scripture. And I'm convinced our, our salvation is bound up in that. And so that is my invitation because it's my own story. And it's a reminder, again, when I get stuck, when I get burnt out, when I'm experiencing com- compassion fatigue, that it's probably time for me to spend the night in the shelter again. It's probably hmm. time for me to get in line at the soup kitchen because Jesus will be waiting for me there. Well, that preaches. So, thanks for giving your time this afternoon, and we're going to be uh, looking forward to hearing more about this ministry in the future. We'll bring you on sometime maybe after November. Tell us more about Sunday evening at Haywood Street. And thanks to everyone for listening on Blog Talk Radio. The show is going to be available uh, as a podcast at the Blog Talk page and now on iTunes. So keep up with us at Facebook and Twitter, and our conference are on the website. Uh, umconnect.info. So we'll be back next week connecting United Methodists and their stories. Thanks to our sponsors, the Western North Carolina Conference and the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about them on the sponsors section of the website, umconnect.info. I'm Michael Rich, and you've been listening to Connect.